millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome to Murder Mile. A true crime podcast, an audio-guided walk, featuring many of London's untold, unsolved, and long-forgotten murders, all set within one square mile of the West End. Today's episode is the concluding part of the true story of Paul Nobbs, a 19-year-old student who was befriended and seduced by one of Britain's most infamous serial killers, Dennis Nielsen. Murder Mile contains deathly depictions, which won't be suitable for tender ears, as well as realistic sounds, so that, no matter where you listen to this podcast, you'll feel like you're actually there. My name is Michael, I am your tour guide, and this is Murder Mile. Episode 12 Dennis Nielsen and the Sleeping Bag of Death Part 2 At 6am, on the morning of the 24th of November 1981, Paul Nobbs woke up with a start. (gasps) His throat was raw, his eyes were bleary and his head was pounding a non-stop pumping as fresh blood coursed through his veins and up to his brain, as around him was the detritus of last night's drunken merriment. Discarded beer cans, an empty Bacardi bottle, and a pile of cast-off clothes, topped off with a garishly coloured tie. As the small flat was chilly, with a skylight window wide open, on this bitter winter morning... Paul Nobbs lay there for a little while longer, suffering possibly the worst hangover ever, and feeling sick, dizzy and sore. Needing a glass of water to quench the raging pain in his throat, he slowly undid the zip of the bright blue sleeping bag, trying not to wake Dennis, who slept beside him, and crept out of the bed. Dodging even more dispensed booze bottles at his feet, The bedroom seemed even messier than he had remembered, as Paul quietly slipped into the kitchen. At the foot of the bed, Bleep, Nielsen's forever faithful but eternally timid dog, watched with curious eyes as Paul unsteadily tottered. 
filling a glass full of water, Paul raised it to his lips. It should have been cold and refreshing, but instead every mouthful was sore and every gulp was painful, as if he had swallowed razors. Struggling to hold himself upright against the sink, his balance off, his feet unsteady, and his legs weak. Paul had been drunk before, but never this drunk, never this dizzy, and never this ill. Everything hurt. His brain was throbbing, his heart was pumping, his ears were muffled, and every time he rubbed his eyes, they stung. Oddly, even his tongue felt thicker. This was like no hangover that Paul had ever had before. A filament bulb flickered into life as he switched on a small light above the kitchen sink. Its sickly yellow glow, although dull, was instantly blinding as it bathed his face with light. God, you look awful, Dennis uttered from behind him, the soft lilting brogue of his voice as calm as always, and although his concern was honest, it was etched with the jokey playfulness of two men who'd boozed heavily the night before. Looking in the mirror, Nielsen was right. Paul looked truly awful, as if he'd aged twenty years in one night. His youthful face was all puffy and bruised, as if he'd gone ten rounds with a boxer. His twinkly eyes were dark, sunken and sallow, their brilliant whites all bloodshot and cracked. And across his throat was an odd red mark. The skin around it was stretched raw and sore. Yeah, you, you don't look well at all. You should definitely see a doctor, Dennis added as he popped a kettle on the hob to make them both a cup of coffee. But Paul wouldn't drink it. He couldn't drink it. Instead, he unsteadily stumbled back to the bed, his foot accidentally kicking a plastic bucket. And scooping up his jeans, t-shirt and a jacket, he dressed quickly yet calmly, as Bleep gently nuzzled his leg, her ears down, her tail between her legs, and her eyes etched with sadness. And there, the brief relationship between the two men ended, as amicably as it had begun. Nielsen guided Paul to the door, pecked him on the cheek, thanked him for a lovely night, and gave him his name and number, in the hope that, when Paul felt better, they would see each other again. And just like that, Nielsen waved him goodbye, shut the door, and he was gone. Somehow, Paul Nobbs survived a night with one of Britain's most infamous serial killers, who had already murdered twelve men and would go on to kill three others. But how? And why? Having hopped on the tube at Highgate and caught the Northern Line train to Goode Street, as the deafening rumble and screech of the underground rang in his ears, Paul awkwardly tottered up Tottenham Court Road, his feet tripping over each other as he headed to university for his first lecture of the day. But sitting there, bruised, disorientated, and drifting in and out of consciousness, he clearly wasn't well, and thinking that he must have been mugged, 
His tutor insisted that he go to the clinic at the University College Hospital on Gower Street, aided by a friend. Sitting in the doctor's waiting room, Paul shook so badly that he spilt his coffee and was hardly able to light, let alone hold his cigarette. And as he was given ointment for his bloodied eyes and tranquilizers to settle his shattered nerves, it was then that he was given the news that he'd been dreading, as based on his injuries, the doctor concluded that Paul had been strangled. Paul knew that the only man who could have done this was Dennis. But it didn't make any sense. Not only did Paul have no memory of being strangled, but Dennis seemed like such a nice man. He was polite, neat, sweet, kind, loving and generous. He wasn't violent. He wasn't strange. He wasn't threatening in any way. He just seemed like a lovely bloke. Maybe he had been mugged, he thought, as being strangled by Dennis Nielsen was simply too unbelievable. But as we know, there were two sides to Dennis Nielsen. The intelligent, erudite, and softly spoken grandfather-loving civil servant who adopted stray cats, fed the homeless, and nursed injured sparrows back to health, who loved poetry, playing the piano, and cooking. And then there was the drunken, jealous, bitter, hate-filled monster with a penchant for young, slim and often vulnerable boys who, having been abandoned and rejected just three years earlier, on New Year's Eve 1978, he had murdered his first victim, whose name was Stephen Holmes. Nielsen sat on the sofa staring at the dead youth beside him. Nielsen's hands shook as he sparked up a ciggy, knowing what he'd done, but not really believing it. So many mixed emotions were coursing through his brain, as back when he was five, and he'd seen the lifeless body of his beloved grandfather, once again he was gripped with a deep sense of loss, but a strange sense of love for a corpse. And yet, unlike everyone else who had abandoned him, now he had what he would later describe as a new kind of flatmate. Someone who would never leave him, who would never reject him, and who would stay forever. A young, slim, and attractive boy who was silent, still, and best of all, passive. Nielsen quickly tidied up the dishevelled bedroom, binning the beer and Bacardi bottles, packing away the bright blue sleeping bag, emptying the water from the plastic bucket, and returning his garishly coloured tie back onto its hanger, ready to wear to work. Having ran a bath, Nielsen hoisted the slowly cooling youth over his shoulder, carried it into the bathroom, and laid the limp, floppy and lifeless boy into the tub and slowly began to wash the corpse's hair, face and body with a damp of washing up liquid and his bare hands. 
Oddly, even though he was a murder virgin, many of Dennis Nielsen's post-mortem rituals stemmed from that night. With the bathing of the corpse becoming a vital ritual, whether to wash away his sin or to erase its old self and make way for the new, as the corpse and the killer became a couple. Having slid the slippery-skinned cadaver out of the tub, Nielsen popped him on the toilet seat to towel the body dry and then laid him flat on the bed. As dead as Stephen Holmes was, with a pinkish face, bluish lips and a deep red ligature mark across his neck, Nielsen couldn't help but marvel at how beautiful he was, which left him with a quandary. Not having a car, Nielsen couldn't dispose of the body elsewhere. But being so beautiful, he couldn't cut it up either. Even though, in a brief moment of clarity, Nielsen had popped into the ironmongers to buy a large cooking pot and a carving knife. So dressing it in a fresh pair of his own underwear, some socks, a pair of white Y-fronts, and a vest purchased from Woolies, Nielsen climbed into bed and snuggled up next to the still slightly warm corpse, who was silent, still, and passive, just the way he liked it. But this time, being slightly more sober and spooning a beautiful but slowly decomposing boy who wouldn't say no, and even better, couldn't say no, Nielsen now had no problem getting an erection. And slowly, he began to explore the dead youth's body with his hands. For Nielsen, this didn't feel strange. It was exciting. And the only reason his hands were now shaking was the thrill of having so much control over another person. Stephen Holmes was his new boyfriend. Someone to come home to, to have meals with, to watch the telly with to snuggle up with on the sofa, and even to have sex with. This corpse would be subservient to him, and however he wanted it dressed, shaved or bathed, that's how it would be. And although he would later claim that he was over the relationship, when dressed, Stephen Holmes and most of Nielsen's corpse brides all resembled Twinkle. But this romance, like many in Nielsen's love life, was short-lived, as although a corpse could be the perfect partner, being both loyal and passive, but best of all quiet, sadly Nielsen knew that soon enough his lifeless lover would start to rot and begin to stink. So having pulled up a few floorboards in his ground floor flat, he propped the strangely stiff youth against the wall as he waited a day till the rigor mortis had ceased and the once rigid muscles had begun to liquefy so he could finally bend the limbs and the rest of the body into the 12-inch crawl space below. And then he went to work. Occasionally, Nielsen would disinter the corpse from its chilly grave to bathe it, chat to it, cuddle it, kiss it or have sex with it his erection always seeming to subdue before he could enter it anally, 
So instead, he would fold over the legs and would have sex with those. And seeing how beautiful the boy still looked, he couldn't help but masturbate over the body. In total, the corpse of Stephen Holmes stayed underneath the floorboards for over seven months. But by the 11th of August 1979, after a long hot summer, during which time the body had begun to liquefy, bubble and attract flies, Nielsen finally decided that air fresheners, joysticks and an open window simply wasn't enough to get rid of the stench. And so, wrapped in bin bags, he burned the body of Stephen Holmes on a bonfire in his back garden, a large rubber tyre placed on top to disguise the smell of scorching flesh. And being a homeless boy from an uncaring family, Stephen Holmes was never reported missing. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Over the next three years, in a series of drunken rages, Nielsen would strangle 12 men. He'd bathe them, abuse them, and dispose of them. Sometimes killing one a year, sometimes one a month. But why, after so many murders, did he let Paul Nobbs survive? In April 1982, five months after the attempted murder of Paul Nobbs, 21-year-old Carl Stotter, a drag artist of slim build, with light brown hair, soft pale skin and a pretty face, entered the Black Cat, a gay-friendly pub on Camden High Road. Being a pretty young thing, it wasn't long before he was being chatted up. But being in a vulnerable state, having broken up with his boyfriend, Carl got talking to a tall, bespectacled man known locally as Des who was unlike the other regulars, and regaled him with tales of his army career, police stint, his love of poetry, animals and cooking, in his soft Aberdeen brogue. 
and being friendly, eloquent, and totally unthreatening, he invited Carl back to his flat for a drink, some dinner, some sex, and maybe, Dennis hoped, a new boyfriend. As they entered the top-floor flat of number 23 Cranley Gardens, the first thing that greeted Carl Stotter, before the enthusiastic wagging of Bleep the Dog and the intense icy chill of the flat, was the overpowering odour of joysticks, air freshener and bleach, which disguised the meaty smell which he thought was emanating from the big pot on the hob. As if for the last few weeks, Nielsen had been cooking stews. Nielsen had lived in the Cranley Gardens flat for six months, and still it was squalid. As although he'd hoped that this new flat would curb his impulse to kill, it hadn't. And now it posed an even bigger problem. At Melrose Avenue, where Stephen Holmes had met his death, was a ground-floor flat with sole access to a private garden, surrounded by an eight-foot fence. The perfect pad for a serial killer, with twelve bodies to dispose of. But here, at Cranley Gardens, it had no garden, no storage space, and being an attic flat, it was not suitable for burying any bodies underneath the floorboards. So when his landlord decided to renovate the Melrose Avenue flat in the late summer of 1982, Nielsen needed to dispose of every piece of evidence of his heinous crimes. And on a big back garden bonfire, with a large rubber tire on top, he burned every bone, limb, face and torso. Raking the hot coals and stamping on the cooling ash, until his victims were just dust. For Nielsen, moving into Cranley Gardens was a fresh start. He knew he was lucky, and if he controlled his urge to kill, he may even get away with it. So as Paul Nobbs entered Nielsen's new flat just a few short weeks after Nielsen had moved in, he was lucky as Nielsen's priorities had changed. In fact, in the weeks prior to Paul's near-death experience, many men had come to 23 Cranley Gardens, had drank, dined, and did the dirty with Dennis. And so far, all had survived. But that changed in March 1982, one month before his date with Carl Stotter as Nielsen drank and dined in his flat with John Howlett, a man who Nielsen neither liked, loved, nor loathed. And in a fit of drunken anger, his overwhelming impulse to kill got the better of him. Finding the man not particularly pleasant, polite, or even pleasing on the eye, Nielsen drank and dined with John Howlett, but never had sex with him, regardless of whether he was dead or alive. The disposal of Howlett's body was entirely out of necessity. A soon-to-be-rotting corpse whose putrid stench would alert the neighbours. So having strangled him and drowned him, Nielsen set about dismembering his corpse on the kitchen floor, popping his limbs in black plastic bags, 
flushing his flesh down the toilet, cutting his torso up into chunks to be chucked out with the rubbish, and the soft skin, eyes, and any identifiable features of his head boiled in a large cooking pot. And although the body was mostly thrown, dumped, or flushed away, weeks later, the stench in the flat still remained. For Carl and Dennis, the night was uneventful. They drank, they ate, they watched the telly, and then they stumbled into bed in a drunken stupor. Dennis in a light duvet, Carl in a bright blue sleeping bag, with neither man making any attempt at sex, as Carl had said no, and Dennis couldn't muster a boner, so they both went to sleep. But during the night, Carl Stotter woke with a start. (gasps) His throat was raw, his eyes were bleary, and his head was pounding. But with his limbs tightly bound by the bright blue sleeping bag, his face firmly pressed down into the suffocating pillow, Carl felt an overpowering tightness across his throat as the sleeping bag zip dug deep into his bleeding neck. A heavy pressure bearing down on his back, crushing his lungs and stopping his air. Moments before he lost consciousness, he could clearly hear behind him Nielsen loudly whispering, Stay still! Stay still! As the limp, silent, and seemingly lifeless youth lay on the bed, Nielsen knew that strangulation wasn't enough to kill Carl, as it hadn't with so many other victims. So needing to finish the job properly, Nielsen ran a bath. Unzipping the sleeping bag, Dennis dragged the slowly comatose Carl to the bathroom, popped the slim naked man on the lip of the tub, and slowly lowered him in, submerging his head under the water. Shocked awake by the water's icy coldness, Carl started to panic, his weakening arms flailing as Nielsen dunked his head again and again and again. Carl pleading, Please, no more! Stop! As he swallowed great gulps of water, his lungs choking, his lips turning blue, and having held his head under the water until the bubbles from his nose and mouth had ceased, Nielsen knew that Carl was dead. Having toweled his wet limp torso off, Nielsen propped Carl up in the armchair, made himself a cup of coffee and sparked up a cigarette. As he sat there, looking at this beautiful fresh corpse and wondering what he was going to do with it, whether to stow it, slice it, or shag it. But it was during this odd little moment of calm, when the life and death struggle was over, and Nielsen was now contemplating another sordid descent into necrophilia, that both of their lives changed forever. Sensing that all was not as it seemed, Nielsen's six-year-old dog, known as Bleep, who was as timid as she was scruffy, 
started nuzzling the corpse's leg, and realising that it still clung to the tiniest morsel of life, she started to lick Carl's face, causing his eyes to flutter. Carl wasn't dead. Having already killed Carl twice before, Nielsen knew that he needed to finish the job. But with the bath still full, and the garish necktie within reach, Nielsen didn't kill Carl. And nobody knows why. Even Nielsen had no idea what stopped him. Whether he was racked with a deep sense of guilt, was slowly sobering up, or was so overcome by compassion at seeing this wounded animal before him. And although he wasn't a stray cat, a starving sparrow, or his beloved grandfather, Nielsen saw what Bleep was sensing, and acted on it. Although she'd been brought as a puppy for 50 pence in a Kilburn Park pet store, Bleep was with Nielsen throughout his breakup with Twinkle, all 15 murders, and yet she never rejected him. She was, as Nielsen would later state, my most loyal companion, the one person I loved without question, who on many occasions, such as now, would save her master's life, barking whenever he fell asleep with a lit cigarette and bringing him back to reality. Over the next day, Nielsen strived to return Carl Stotter back to the land of the living, by covering him with warm blankets, putting both bars of the electric fire on, rubbing his frozen limbs, and spoon-feeding him hot soup, until slowly his colour returned. Although groggy, weak, and barely able to stand, Carl Stotter stood in the kitchen, staring into the small mirror over the sink the sickly yellow tungsten light illuminating his puffy bruised face, his sunken bloodshot eyes and his fat swollen tongue. As across his neck he saw a deep red mark, the imprint of a zip clearly visible, to which Nielsen muttered, God, you look awful. Although struggling to talk, as the pain of swallowing even saliva was simply too intense, lapsing in and out of consciousness and suffering from a series of horrifying flashbacks, Carl asked Nielsen what had happened, as very little was making sense. In an almost matter-of-fact way, with a smug hint of the heroics, Nielsen implied that in the midst of a fitful sleep, with Carl tossing, turning, and babbling incoherently, that he had had a nightmare, and had contorted his body so badly that he'd suffocated himself on the zip of the bright blue sleeping bag. Seeing his new pal suffocating, a sleepy Nielsen had dived on top of Carl's back to wrestle the zip open. But with his lips turning blue, his face pale, and his body shaking, the deadly zip had done its worst. So going into acute shock, Nielsen placed Carl in a bath of cold water. The shock of the cool bathwater, reviving Carl from the horror of being strangled by the sleeping bag of death. As soon as Carl Stotter was well enough, Nielsen walked him to Highgate Tube Station. He hoped they'd meet again. He wished him farewell 
waved him goodbye, and Nielsen was gone. Carl Stotter never truly believed the sleeping bag story, as it seemed too unbelievable. But having spent the night in a sleepy, drunk and barely conscious state, neither could he tell which of the vivid images which haunted his dreams were real or a nightmare. And as fantastic as the story was, the alternative was simply too implausible. The Dennis Nielsen, a sweet, kind, polite, loving, caring and generous man, who wasn't strange or threatening in any way, with a soft lilting brogue, a love of animals and a passion for poetry, had suddenly, for no reason at all, tried to strangle him. Both Carl Stotter and Paul Nobbs testified at Nielsen's trial at the Old Bailey in November 1983. It was as they sat there, giving evidence, that the full horror of their near-death experience and miraculous survival became apparent. And although Carl and Paul are alive and well today, they rarely discuss what happened. Dennis Nielsen was found guilty of six counts of murder, two counts of attempted murder, and was later sentenced to a whole life tariff, meaning he will never be released. Carl Stutter once wrote to Dennis Nielsen to ask him why he'd attacked him. In his reply, Nielsen cryptically wrote, What passed between us was a thin strand of love and humanity. Still to this day, Carl Stutter states, I've turned over what he said until I'm blue in the face, but I can't find an answer. Between 1978 and 1983, Dennis Andrew Nielsen murdered 15 men and attempted to kill at least three others. And although an unknown number of men escaped the clutches of one of Britain's most infamous serial killers, none of them were his last victim. Three days after his arrest, fearing that no one would want her, Bleep, Dennis Nielsen's six-year-old sweet-natured dog, who he had brought for 50 pence in a Kilburn pet shop, and had saved the life of Carl Stotter, was put to sleep by the police vet. Her only crime, being the loyal, loving and faithful pet of serial killer Dennis Nielsen. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. Although this was the concluding part of Dennis Nielsen and the Sleeping Bag of Death, I shall return with even more stories about the life, loves and deaths of Dennis Nielsen soon. If you enjoyed this series, don't forget to like us, share us and rate us. That would be very much appreciated. Murder Mile was researched, written and performed by myself, with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult With No Name. Next week's episode is Margaret Cook and The Long Confession. Thank you for listening, and sleep well. Hey, 
it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.